Hi guys, welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. Uh, this is Nathan Barley Phillips, and uh, we're recording here in London, in the UK. Uh, slightly different episode today. Um, we've uh, the guests and myself are all uh, based in our individual homes. Uh, we're recording this via uh, an internet link, so apologies in advance if there's any issues with the audio. Um, but we're desperately trying to uh, continue with our schedule and try and get uh, these um, these podcasts out for you guys whilst the uh, the coronavirus is is happening on a on a global level. Um, so we didn't want to let it stop us. Um, so we wanted to crack on. So um, so today we're uh, we're going to be taking a, a really cool look into uh, the subject of mixing versus mastering, and we are super super lucky. Uh, to have uh, Don Morley um, with us, who is a Grammy award-winning uh, producer and engineer, um, he's joining us on the on the podcast today. Uh, for those of you that don't know Dom or his work, um, Dom was an engineer on Amy Winehouse's number one album, Back to Black. Uh, he also worked on Mark Ronson's version record. Uh, and has done a ton of other stuff, uh, some really cool stuff uh, like um, Adele's debut r- record and some singles on that. Um, so we're going to say hello to Dom now and um, he'll be able to give us a, a lot more of, uh, insight into his career and uh, what kind of brought him to this level. And then we're going to have a chat um, a little bit more about what mixing and mastering means to him. So Dom, hi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me on. No problem at all. Um, so yeah, how's how's things in your world? This is obviously we're we're doing the best we can. Uh, we're we're trying to. How's it affecting you? This this whole uh, coronavirus stuff going around right now. Uh, well, it's it's very odd for uh, for people like me because we're obviously paid by musicians, and they just had their main source of income, i.e., kind of gigs and live things, pulled from them. So they don't really know when they're next able to earn, which makes it a difficult choice for them to whether whether they should start investing in recordings or continue investing in recordings so everything's kind of up in the air a little bit for i've chatted to a few other people in my position we're all kind of waiting to see what happens with there's potential government bailouts for self-employed that will make a big difference and and yeah then hopefully things will start rolling again but understandably everyone's kind of holding off until they know really where they're going to be so there's a lot of i guess treading water there's a couple of things that i'm uh, I've got to finish off, so that's cool. But yeah, there's a lot of treading water and seeing what's going on. But I do also have three kids who are now not at school because the school's shut. So that's kind of that's busy too. Yeah, definitely. I think that these these times are kind of uh, interesting for for all of us. You know, that this is kind of a precedent and a dynamic which I don't think any of us have really ever experienced in our lifetime. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of everyone's having to to deal with it in different ways. But it really is kind of affecting. Uh, the music and entertainment industry in a in a kind of in a big way. Yeah, massively. Yeah, yeah. Have you got have you got kind of um, projects and things that that you can kind of work on remotely without having artists come to see you in the studio? Uh, yeah, I've got I've got a couple of things. I also run um, something called the Mix Consultancy, which is a website that um, people can go onto and they upload their tracks. You know, if they're sort of struggling with a mix, they can upload their tracks, and then I give them a, a whole load of feedback on how to make it better. Um, and that's obviously working quite well at the moment because people are going over tracks that they maybe have struggled with, or they're going back to things that they haven't haven't kind of finished yet. And so, 
yeah, there's a lot of that going on at the moment, which which keeps me uh, busy in in normal times anyway. So there's a bit more of that now. People are are going going back into their studios and and doing a lot more creative work. So so that's sort of from a very personal point of view. That kind of that's working for me. Um, alongside, I've got an EP that I've got to do a bunch of stuff on. Unfortunately, I've got to record some more stuff on and. Um, and and with uh, coronavirus currently running through my kids, I can't um, meet with the guy to record it. So that will wait a few weeks until this is all gone. Um, so yeah, it's, it will be fine. It will be fine. It's I, I think I'm I'm putting a lot of um, a lot of faith in the government to sort this out. But they seem to have been sorting out things quite well for other other industries and other other people so i think they'll do the same for the self-employed in the entertainment industry it's just a we're far more complicated than the usual industry so it's just taking a little while for that to sort out but hopefully by the end of the week we'll be in a much better position by the time people have heard this podcast we'll know basically yeah yeah absolutely yeah so you're kind of yeah i guess you're in a sort of state of isolation until uh until you've kind of got the all the all clear and then you can you can start kind of <laughs> bringing musicians back into the studio yeah knowing that by that point i'll probably have had it having got it off my kids and um and then be immune so i won't be able to kind of carry it around anymore so i'll actually be one of the safer people to work with well there's a there's a benefit hopefully <laughs> yeah there's a there's a silver lining <laughs> so dom i wanted to get back into um into to just really quickly just back into kind of your career and kind of how it all started for you because i think it'll be really uh interesting so, you know for our listeners um you know certainly that are kind of uh, you know, kind of up and coming or just starting out in their their artist or, uh, you know, producer uh, journey. So, yeah, I'd love to kind of hear um, a bit more, you know, kind of about how you got started and certainly what led to, you know, working on things like, um, you know, the Amy Winehouse record and and, mm-hmm. and and everything else that you've done. Yeah, well, okay. So if we go back to the, the very first stuff, it was as a teenager, as a lot of people I think do, started as a teenager in a band. Um, and I quite liked recording us i bought a four track i remember back back in those days it was a four track cassette machine was the best quality thing you could um you could record on which obviously weirdly is making a comeback um but anyway bought one of those really enjoyed it wanted a bit more flexibility ended up putting saving up for ages and bought an eight track reel to reel and my bedroom slowly turned into something that looked a bit more like a studio um so that's that was kind of what i really enjoyed doing and in fact i enjoyed doing that way more than i enjoyed gigging so i sort of realized that was my thing musically was more the recording side than the playing side and then uh this was mid 90s so we're talking really pre-internet here um and so i i went to the library to find a book about jobs in music and discovered this this yeah yeah as one of my kids said once um when you were a teenager like in 1850 or whatever not quite that far back but um but yeah anyway i, I got this book and it said and it said a whole bunch of jobs and one of them it described was called studio engineer and and then as i was reading i was like that's exactly what i want to do so i then got another book out which uh, listed, it was like a directory of all the studios uh, in the UK. And somebody, the only person I knew who had any kind of musical connection was a friend of my dad's who wrote music for TV. So he wasn't really connected with studios. He just kind of had his own little place in his garden. Um, And he said, as a bit of a rule of thumb, if you want to work in a studio, look for one that's got either an SSL desk or a Neve desk, because those are the two sort of best ones. And so... Um, 
you kind of you you know it's a good studio if it's got one of those. So I made a list from this directory of all the studios in London that had an SSL or a Neve, and then I basically set off with a CV that said nothing much more than, you know. Um, I've done a bit of recording in my bedroom with my band and my mate's band. So it wasn't, you know, anything to talk about. And I basically tried to knock on doors of every single one of those studios with an offer of, um, I'll work for nothing, I make good tea. And spent three days walking around London, getting a no from every last place I tried. Uh, so then um, I'm pretty stubborn. Um, I went to Birmingham, being the next biggest city, and my brother lived there at the time. Um, and tried there and and i knocked on one door and he said um yeah all right see you monday 10 o'clock so i went there and i was back in those days you could sign on you had like a job seekers allowance thing so it meant i could i could just live i i, I had a really dodgy like bed sit in you know it was like sound of gunshots at night it was really not safe at all but i was fine if i was locked in there um so i lived there and I was doing work experience this place, and they I went out every Thursday to sign on, um, and they gave me my money for the week, and that kind of kept me in peanut butter on toast for breakfast and lunch and a pot noodle for dinner. That was my, that was how I lived. Uh, but I was loving it. I was in the studio from when it opened till when it shut. Um, and the thing that was unusual apparently is they used to do this quite a lot. They got guys from the local college who would come down and do work experience. And 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 those guys would leave about four o'clock because that's when they normally left college. But I would leave when they turned the alarm on, basically, because I just was wanting to to hang around and learn as much as I could. Uh, so in the end, after I'd been there for a few months, and then a, a job came up at a nearby studio, which was owned by UB40. Uh, they had like a, a fairly decent studio, and they employed assistants and stuff. So the guy that I'd been assisting, the producer had been working there that I'd been helping out knew the chief engineer um over at ub40's place a guy called mike exeter um and and said basically you should give dom the job you know a job came up give and he said give it to dom so uh, i went over for an interview got the job and then i worked there for a couple of years which was great i learned a lot it was a small studio um a sort of small uh, it was well run and the people there were great and i'm still good friends with them actually and they're all still you know in the business which is unusual um but it was uh, it was good because it was small. So within six months, I was engineering sessions, and I was really learning fast by being thrown in the deep end, basically. Um, uh, but after a couple of years, I you know I'd always wanted to go to London, and I'd worked on some stuff for UB40. I'd worked on um, some stuff for Ocean Colour Scene, who were a big '90s band up there, and Bentley Rhythm Ace, who were also a big '90s band there. So I'd worked with a lot of the big bands in the town. Um, so then I came down to London and I managed to, after a little bit of freelance assisting, which was unusual then, but a lot more common these days, um, a freelance assisting, I, um, I got a job with Metropolis Studios in Chiswick, which is a really, uh, big, um, five, it had five studios at the time. I think it's four now and more mastering rooms, but it was a really big studio. It still is biggest, biggest independent in Europe, I believe, and um yeah and it, what i loved about it which which was important to me and i really wanted to get the metropolis job um there were which is worth something worth bearing in mind for any sort of budding engineers out there is you can become very easily attached to bits of gear and particularly back in those days the the thing in those days was the desk that you worked on and we had an ssl at depth studios where i worked and 
you'd get people that would come in and they had to use an SSL. They couldn't work if it wasn't one. Remember a couple of times they were accidentally booked into the wrong room and the other room didn't have one and they freaked out. And I always thought, I don't want to be the sort of person who needs a certain bit of gear in order to do my job. And Metropolis at the time had a Focusrite desk, an SSL-E, an SSL-G, an SSL-J, and a Neve. So they had five different desks. So my theory on that would be, if I worked there, then I'd just know how to use desks, and I wouldn't be tied to any individual one. Um, so that 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 was great. So that pulled off, basically. So then um, I was the new guy there, um, which meant my first week I did, God, what was it? Two 24-hour days and one 42-hour day. So that was a little bit of a trial by fire, but I did. Ex- I kind of thought that would happen. I thought it would be a bit of a, this guy has come from this provincial studio, has he got what it takes to work in this, you know, high-pressure London one. But that all went okay, and I ended up just, you know, working all hours ridiculously. But I was in my 20s, so I could cope with that. It was all fine. Um, and then uh, I just kind of worked my up, my way up, really. So I started being in-house engineer, doing little bits and bobs of of people that would come in and say they just wanted the in-house engineer to do something. They hadn't, they hadn't employed a freelancer to come along. And one day, the sort of the biggest stroke of luck was one day I was um, asked to do a session that was a vocal recording. No, it wasn't even vocal recording. It was guitars and bass. Um, and it was a New York DJ who I hadn't heard of. Um, and it was with uh, uh, this North London jazz singer who I'd briefly worked with doing swear word replacement stuff on her previous album, um, where, you know, they just replace swear words with things that are palatable for radio. Um, so it was like a day that I'd done with her doing that. But basically, that was Mark Ronson and Amy Winehouse working on the new record. So um, uh, things went quite well there. There's quite a good serendipity story. Do you want to hear a good serendipity story about how that went well? Yeah. Okay, these funny little things that happen. And I think uh, the the guiding principle on this, right, the thing that I always tell, I do a lot of lectures to universities, and, and I tutor the MA course up at Leeds College of Music. I'm always telling people to, it's a case of putting yourself in a position to score. It's like the, the best strikers best goal scorers in the world, they only spend a couple of minutes in a game on the ball. But the other 88 minutes, they spend putting themselves in a position to score. And the ones that are working hardest at that are the ones that end up getting the goal when the ball comes to them. So so I think you've got to treat your career that way. You never know what thing is going to come along that's going to be the thing that enables you to, to take another leap ahead. So I'd worked... Well, I'd... I'll start at the beginning. I'd been a massive TUX fan as a kid. Um, and I saw in the diary of the studio diary that Tony Visconti, the producer was coming in and he was looking for an in-house engineer. So I just went to the studio manager. I'm doing that one. I'm doing that one. I'm doing that one. I'm doing that one. Cause he's obviously famous for his Bowie work, but, but he did all the T-Rex stuff as well, which I loved. So, um, so anyway, it was a Morrissey session. We're doing all the B-sides for the Ringleader of the Tormentors album. So I uh, recorded all of that with with uh, Tony and, and Morrissey's band and, and Morrissey. And that went really well. And then uh, did a, a bunch of rough mixes. He had to mix it himself back in New York. But I did a bunch of rough mixes for him. And, and he said there was a particular vocal sound that Morrissey was looking for at the time, which was quite weird. Um, I can't even remember what it was, but it was just an unusual sound. And he's... Tony said, here's what you need to do. Just do that. I know it sounds a bit odd, but he loves it. So we're going with that. So that was fine and did that. Then fast forward on two months and I'm with Mark Ronson working on his uh, solo record. This was probably only the second day that I'd worked with him working on his album version. 
and there was a track called Stop Me If You Think You've Heard This One Before. Now, this was, the, I believe they were quite keen for this to be a first single, because one, it was a good tune, but also it's an album of covers, so it's quite funny to have a song called Stop Me If You Think You've Heard This One Before as, like, the lead single. Um, but it's a Morrissey track. Uh, well, but Smith Smith song, obviously. So uh, it was it was important to Mark that he got the uh, he got the nod from Morrissey because he was a fan. He wanted Morrissey to say, you know, yeah, I like it. You can do it. Um, I'm not sure if it was a wholly necessary. It all sort of depends on how publishing deals work. I think in that in that respect. But but it was important to Mark that Morrissey said yes. So anyway, we just finished a session at about seven in the evening, or, or actually it's probably a bit late, about nine, which meant we only had two or three hours left on the clock. But Mark had to go and DJ something. So he left me to it and said, look, we've been overdubbing guitars on this track. Can you do a rough mix of this track? Stop me if you think you've heard this one before. Um, I need to send it to Morrissey for approval. By the way, Morrissey's never approved a cover before. Good luck. And then left. So I sort of mildly panicked, <laughs> thinking that's a bit of pressure. Um, but remembered this odd vocal sound that I'd had to get for Morrissey um, a little while back. Um, so I mixed the track very roughly. I only had two or three hours in which that I was able to do it. So I mixed the track, um, with Morrissey's odd vocal sound on, on this guy's vocal. Um, and Morrissey approved it, which Mark was overjoyed with obviously. And, and it got to be the first single on the album, which was a huge success for him and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all went well. So, um, that was an interesting bit of serendipity of, um, of working on the Morrissey thing. And then that being, being vital to help Mark's album deliver how he wanted it to be delivered. So yeah. And then, you know, continue to work with Mark, obviously the Amy album, we all, all won Grammys for and, um, yeah. And just done whatever I could since really working with people that I think are interesting and, and that I think I can make sound better. That's really kind of the key thing for me if I think my presence on their record will be of a benefit to what they're trying to achieve, then, you know, I'll take it on. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you're, you're so right. I mean, just especially how this, this industry works is, um, you know, is, is kind of notorious for that is, you know, notorious for those, uh, yeah, serendipitous kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, instances where you, you just, you just wouldn't, wouldn't happen if you planned it that way. But, uh, but because of previous work, you know, sort of little bits of networking here and there, which, which is also massively important in the, in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. Something I know I'm not as good at as I should be. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, I, I think we could all do a bit more of that. It's just sometimes it's time, sometimes it's confidence, and you know, sometimes it's just, you know, you, you're just so yeah, busy yeah. with uh, with the day to day. So, but um, yeah, yeah all thanks of those a lot things. for sharing all of that. Yeah. I, I'd love to kind of get into a little bit more, um, you know, into the kind of nuts and bolts of this now. Um, so, I mean, for me, I think it'd be really interesting. Well, certainly for me, but also for everyone listening, for for you, what what is what's the kind of the essence of of mixing? Per se, for you. Okay, so um, the the kind of the brief overview of it um, is mixing is the process whereby you have every single element that you've recorded um, in your DAW or on tape as it was back in the old days, um, but you've got every one of them. They're all separated out. You can manipulate them however you want with EQ, compression, effects, all of that sort of stuff, and all the levels, and you control all those levels and do all those treatments on the individual items until you're happy with it 
and then you get it down into, you sort of bounce it down or print it, however you phrase it, into just a stereo file of left and right, where you can no longer adjust the individual levels and the individual sounds of the instruments that are in it, and you've only got a stereo file to work with. So that's kind of the overview of the technical process of a mix. Um, to get into how you're doing it, I think is the mixing is a two-stage process. Uh, one of them is where you try and get everything to sit together properly and sound like it's supposed to be there. Uh, so it's that's a lot of work with EQ and compression and making things all sound nice together and not like they're clashing and not like they're uncomfortable. And that's sort of something that you develop with a lot of critical listening skills, which just comes through practice. And actually that's the, the thing yeah, I mentioned earlier, uh, my shameless plug about the mix consultancy thing that I do, that's the thing that I help people with the most is hearing the problems that they haven't heard and helping them kind of develop their listening so that they know where those problems are in future. So that's that's one stage is where you're getting it all together and making everything sit properly. And then the next stage is where you work on the dynamics of the song and you're adjusting the levels so that the right thing comes out at the right time and the chorus kind of lands big and heavy and or, or, or empty and sparse, depending on how you want it to land. But basically, you're directing the listener's ear to what you want the listener to hear at every moment of the song. And that's all done through levels and, and, and balancing the volumes of everything individually so they all sit together, which can take a long time. That can be quite a long process. Um, and that's really kind of the, the two different stages of what you're doing when you're mixing. So that's the big difference between mixing and mastering, really, is the mixing, you've got all that control over every individual element of your track. And mastering, you've just got the stereo stereo bounce of everything stuck together so your your control of the individual elements is gone does that make sense yeah no absolutely so i mean when you're kind of coming to the so well i guess this is a kind of two-part question for, for you when do you know a mix is done and and then when when is the right time uh, to actually have your mixes uh, mastered okay so so this is, we're, we're very much straying into personal opinion here, as other people may disagree with me on this, but this is kind of as I've always done it and the people I've worked with have always done it. In terms of a mix being done, it's kind of, I mean, as with any work of art, you could argue that it's never done, you just stop working on it. But I, I have my own process with it, whereby I've got um, two sets of speakers that I trust implicitly and headphones as well that, that I have the same relationship with. And... I will go through on the second stage that I just discussed about the levels and making sure the mix is, is moving as you want it. I'll go through the mix completely on each set of them. So say I'll start on my, uh, I've got Yamaha NS10, say I'll start on those. I'll make it sound exactly how I want it all the way through the mix to the end, which takes quite a while. That could be a few hours. Um, and then I'll switch to my other speakers, for example, my, which are my Neumann 310s, and then I'll do exactly the same there. So I've switched to another set of speakers so that I can hear things that I didn't hear on the NS10s and I can make other changes thinking, oh, that's actually now listening on these speakers. I haven't quite done enough of a job on this bit and this bit's sticking out and it shouldn't and things like that. And then I do the same process on my headphones and then I go back to the NS10s that I started with. Um, and if everything is still in a good place and it's where I want it, and then I go, okay, I've done it. What I will then do if I can, and it just depend on time and, you know, what your schedule's like, what the artist schedule's like, ideally I'll come back again the next day with fresh ears, have another quick listen, 
on one or even all three if I want, but it will be a quick listen. It, there won't be much. And there might be three or four things that I want to change again at that stage. So that's kind of like, in an ideal world, I'll have that. I'll have that little gap, and I'll be able to come back the next day and do those final changes. And then for me, it's done. Um, obviously, at that point, I'm also getting feedback from the artist and, and making changes according to what they want to do. So they'll they'll throw me some ideas of, oh, can you make this louder? Can you make this brighter? Can I hear a bit more of this? Uh, and then I'll work that into the mix, and then that will take some time as well to to get that and make sure it's still moving the way I think it should move, but but incorporating the the changes that the artist wants incorporated. So it's a bit of a kind of to and fro process there, but I, I enjoy that. I think that's that's a really good part of it because I get asked questions that I think oh I hadn't thought of that, and then I get to learn something myself as well every time I'm doing a mix because I'm I'm doing something that that I wasn't expecting or that I hadn't heard. So that's that's a great thing. Um, and then, uh, and then, sorry, what was the second question? I've, I've just completely gone down a road there. It's just, it's just really kind of what I'm trying to get to the, to, to the bottom of here is, okay, so you, you finish the, you finish the mix and you're happy with the mix. You mm-hmm. then send it off, uh, you send it off for mastering for you. What, what is that mastering process doing to your mix that you haven't done in the mix? Okay. Ideally, very little. I mean, that's the ideal world is that they do very little to my mix because I've done it well. I've got a good balance of everything and and it's sounding exciting and punchy and everything like that. So that's the ideal world. What they'll probably do, a mastering engineer, so they'll get your stereo file and they'll listen to it in their room. And, and mastering engineers, their rooms are different from mixing engineers because there's a few things. They're only ever dealing with stereo tracks. So I, for example, I like outboard compressors. So I've got, I'm not going to count them, but I've got quite a few. Um, and they all have a slightly different flavor about them. Like there'll be the DBXs that I like on bass, for example. And I like the valve compressors on, well, I, there's one of them I like on vocals, the other one I like on pianos and so on. So there'll be all these different ones that I like for the different flavors and how they work with different instruments. So mastering engineers don't have that because they're just always treating a stereo file. So they'll have... Generally, if they've got a bit of analog outboard, it'll be extremely expensive posh ones because they only need one or two. So all of their investment in equipment is only on a few bits of gear. So it tends to be very, very posh stuff. So that's where they differ slightly in terms of the studio. And also, they've got far fewer bits of gear. So their rooms are more built around the speakers. They spend a lot more money on the speakers and getting these crazy expensive, lovely, big, nice speakers so they can really hear detail their studio is built with less, I mean, to get slightly technical, you get more reflective surfaces in the studio for mixing because you've got more gear and you've got fewer in a mastering studio. Bottom line being, they just sound a bit better. So there's all those things about a mastering studio that makes it different from the mixing studio. So they can hear, hopefully, something with a lot more clarity and a more frequency uh, sort of availability than you would have in your mixing studio because your investment is a lot wider in terms of equipment. So they've got that. And so what I would hope is they would hear some things that I didn't hear in their room, like "Mm, there's a bit too much 300 hertz in this mix. I'm just going to take a dB out of that. And then I'm going to put it through this super compressor that manages to hold everything together but let the bottom end really blossom out and sound big. And then the final bit they do is the bit of limiting and a limiting is is the bit that gets quite controversial and talked about because the question is how loud do you want your track to be because everything is a trade-off 
if you're increasing the the volume of it, because there's only so far you can go, what you're doing is you're limiting it, which means the quieter bits are getting louder and the louder bits are getting quieter so that everything can get pushed up to the max. That has an effect on the quality of the audio and the quality of the dynamics that you've put in as a mixer. So the more limited something is, the more squashed it is. Um, it sounds louder initially, but it also sounds, as you get more and more limited, it sounds worse and worse and worse. So the debate with the mastering engineer and something you should be talking about when you book a mastering engineer is how loud you want things to be, is is whether we're trying to push this track and make it really loud, make it really jump out, or are we trying to preserve some of the dynamics there's some beautiful little sounds and movements in here that we want to keep. So we want it to be loud, but not too loud. And you see that there's quite an area that the mastering engineer can be creative there in seeing how loud he can make a track sound without losing the, the key kind of um, the, the principal sounds and dynamics that have been built into it. And they're important for somebody kind of really appreciating the emotional impact of the sound. Yeah. So just, so just on that conundrum there, that kind of leads me to, to the to the question that I think a lot of people are asking, or a lot of artists yeah. that uh, that have been asking, and that's is that does does the audio does the final audio need to be mastered before it's commercially released? Um, well, yeah, I guess it needs to be. You want to do some form of limiting um, so that it's got some kind of it's poking out and it's got some volume and it's equal to the other things that it's played against. And that's what it comes down to: is if you have a uh, your track is in a playlist and it's considerably quieter than the other tracks around it, then it doesn't sound as exciting. So that's where the volume wars came from, really was from radio and being able to jump out of the radio by being the loudest track on there. Um, people have got a lot more sensible now and certainly um, people like uh, Spotify and Tidal um, and I presume the others are trying to work against that by doing a kind of leveling software that they use themselves so that even if one track is really limited and really loud, it doesn't actually come out any louder than the ones around it. Uh, so there's an element that you've got to do a bit of limiting, which is part of the mastering process, and therefore you could say it needs to be mastered in that respect. Um, I would always recommend it in that the big advantage, and, and using a separate mastering engineer, because the big advantage is you're getting a second set of ears that's a professional that does this every day and they can give another opinion and a final little tweak just to get the best out of your song and best out of your track. And I think there's, there's always worth doing getting someone else, which, which comes on to the, the, I think there's a big issue today. Um, and I'm not quite sure where this started, but the idea that the mixers would master their own mixes, which is quite an odd thing for me to sort of, when that first started, I thought, well, how on earth are you, are you mastering your own stuff? Because you're essentially a kind of, you're judging your own work in a way, if you see what I mean. Because you're, the idea of the mastering thing is you send it to the mastering guy and say, is this, you know, is this the frequency range right? And is this, you know, is this delivering right in terms of, is this going to work on everybody's radio and everybody's car and all those sort of things? And if you're sort of being your own judge in that respect, if you're mastering your own mix and you're listening on the same monitors, the same speakers, the same headphones that you did your mix on, so you're not getting a kind of different environment to check it out in and hear the problems of your room, which will come across um, when a mastering person has it in their room. They go, oh, his room, for example, your room could have 
no a big hole in 500 hertz so you end up putting loads of 500 hertz in your mix because you can't hear it because there isn't much in your room then the mastering engineer hears and goes oh there's loads of 500 hertz in this i'm going to take some out now it sounds great if you've mastered your own thing you still haven't heard that problem because you're using the same equipment so and in the same environment so that's that's one of the reasons why i think the idea of somebody mixing mastering um doesn't work it's it's you're not getting the advantage of the moving to a different area and having a, a different set of ears on it but it seems to be happening a lot and i, I don't know why I, I sort of not wanting to peg too much blame on one company um sound better which is a great service uh, it seems to have an option of that you can tick a box and say i want the mixer to do the mastering as well and i think everyone thinks that sounds cheaper you know which makes sense tick the box and then you've kind of really lost the benefit of mastering there because basically your mixer has just limited it and that's all they've done. You haven't gone through a process of making it better. You just got somebody put a limiter on it. Yeah, sure. I want to I want to kind of go into into some of the the myths around mastering in in a second. But the the thing for um mm-hmm. kind of going back going back to the process that you ju- you just discussed there. I, I guess that um, yeah. there will be, there will be some uh, artists out there that um, that that are you know self-producing. They're mixing everything themselves and maybe mastering yep. themselves because they don't have the budget to, to maybe hire an engineer. Would you? It, 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 that probably accounts for, for for some of it, I'm sure. But even when they are doing it themselves, would you would you kind yeah. of say that actually? Uh, you know to, to kind of treat those two things the mixing and the mastering as two totally different processes just to give yourself some kind of distance between the two i would if you have to do it yourself that is yeah that's very well put actually if you don't have the budget and that's fair enough i know there's a lot of people don't and that shouldn't stop them from making records so um if you don't have the budget and it's not possible then separate the time out what i would do ideally was say if you're got an ep project or something like that or if you're doing a bunch of tracks at once even if you're releasing them individually is try and get them all mixed and then master them separately you know a couple of days from the last mix then come at them as a separate kind of event that you listen to them all as one and you'll see are there any frequency problems i'm hearing across everything right fine uh deal with that and then any frequency problems between them? Do they all sound like they came from the same project in terms of EQ and compression? So, yeah, I think you've put it uh, you put it well there. Is it, it, it'd be good to approach, if you're doing it yourself, do it as a different process, separate it out from the mixing process, give yourself a break and some fresh ears so you can come to it new and go, right, this is what my track needs now and I'm just going to master it and I'm going to do the limiting, little bit of EQ and compression with the best stuff that I can get hold of and and that's a separate mastering process to the mixing process okay that's great that's really really good advice definitely so just sort of jumping in on that i just want to kind of put some uh, some statements to you or some or some mythical uh sentences that i've that i've definitely seen floating around yeah. uh, that you can you can kind of give me some some rapid fire responses okay. so the first one is actually you, we've mentioned this a couple of times in the conversation so the first the first one that i see a lot is you don't need mastering, just use a limiter. What's your response to that? Uh, that all depends on how good you want your track to sound. I mean, you can argue about that about anything. You don't need a recording engineer, you don't need a recording studio, you don't need a professional. Um, all of these things are optional, but every time you choose to use one, you make your track sound better. And a good sounding track is one that more people can get into and has got more chance of of getting you heard. So 
you also, you know, you can argue you don't need a mix engineer. You can just mix it yourself. Yep, you can. Um, and it won't sound as good as if a mix engineer did it. Um, you don't need a proper studio. You know, all of these things are optional. But I would say if you're just using a limiter, then you're doing the absolute bare minimum of what's required. And there's a whole world of making your track sound much, much better if you do master it instead. Sorry, that was supposed to be a quick fire answer, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, the the second one that I hear a lot is that is that mastering or hiring a mastering engineer is expensive. Uh, well, yeah, again, it, it can be, but it really doesn't have to be. Um, the, the, the just as, as two examples, there's, there's two great mastering studios in London, which is uh, Abbey Road and Metropolis. They've both got a stack of great engineers. And they do these kind of online things where you upload your track. And as long as you're not going to be fussy about it's got to be this engineer who does it, um, I think they're only about 50 or 60 quid a track, which, to be fair, is not a big investment in, in your, you know, your track being as good as it can be. Uh, so you could upload it to there, and then it'll be, I don't know, a couple of days, or I'm not quite sure how it works, a couple of days, and then you get your track back with, I think you might get, a revision if you want or something like that um yeah but anyway look it up I'm, I'm wildly grasping at how these things work but i do know they're very cost effective and if you use one of those kind of extremely reputable mastering houses there is not a single person in there who isn't very good at what they do so you know you're going to get a good result from them and and personally i'd see uh, for me the investment would be a no-brainer great that's a great response <clears throat> Thirdly, um, so I say, again, there's there's lots of uh, new technologies popping up and lots of new companies. You mentioned one uh, earlier on in the in the conversation, um, but I, I've seen a few people saying that actually some of the AI mastering has re- is now replacing traditional mastering. Do you have a kind of a view on that and and how good that that really is or not or, or isn't? Um, I think all of these, you know, any industry where AI steps in and then everyone says that's that, then. Um is is very optimistic it's kind of reminds me of someone telling me when uh their friend he's so he's a drummer he played for peter gabriel and black grape and all sorts of things and he remember his friend telling him in the 80s when he'd bought a roland tr707 drum machine which is fine but you know it very much sounds like a drum machine and this drummer was rung up by his friend and said you're you know your history now these drum machines sound exactly like a drummer it's incredible and, and anyone today would now kind of laugh at that idea. But but when they were new, it was exciting. And everyone went, wow, that's that's really good. And then they heard their drummer went, actually, no, that's that's very, very different. And I think the same could be said for these AI mastering things. They're not, um, they'll be okay. There'll be some limiting. There'll be some standard, make it brighter, turn the bottom end up kind of things that they're applying to it. But you know what I said about the, the, the creative use of limiting where there's, you're listening to the emotional impact of the song and where the dynamics are important to that. And then you're working in the limiting and the compression to, to boost that rather than just doing a blanket, let's limit everything to five DB and let's compress everything to the same amount. Um, the AI stuff I think would struggle, will certainly struggle for many years to really be as good as a good set of human ears for understanding the emotional impact of a song and how, the compression and EQ and stuff can affect that. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I, I personally agree with that. I think that um, some of the AI stuff can can be um, it can be a, a solution for for a kind of you know, like you mentioned, you know, one or two kind of general purpose things. But um, but yeah, I, I I personally agree with you on the not replacing human ears. Yeah, and and I don't want to say never because I think that you know the way AI will go is is it will be, you know, impressive and, and there'll be a point where it's difficult to tell much as it's, you know, the earliest, I guess, examples that with, was with chess where they, they, they set a computer up and then, and then tested world masters and grandmasters to see if they could tell they were playing computer or person. Eventually the chess, the computer chess players got that good. And eventually AI in music will get very good. But, um, but I, I think we're a very long way away from that so far. Sure. Okay, and final one. Um, so th- this is this is an interesting one that that, that I've definitely heard um, being being uh, being spoken before, and that's that mastering can usually fix a problematic mix. Uh, mm. So your mix your mix isn't quite sort of sounding exactly how you want it, and you think to yourself, "Oh, that's okay. That'll be washed out in the mastering process." God no. <laughs> uh. There'll be mastering engineers throwing their hands in the air hearing that, which is just the same as mix engineers do when they hear "fix it" in the mix. Um, uh, the the other one is "fix it" in the marketing if the if the mastering's messed it up. Um, but, um, but no, um, I think that's a huge a huge error because I mean it's twofold. One is probably not. Um, it probably can't be fixed in mastering, and it should always be fixed in the mix. And you know, again. Another shameless plug. I don't know if I'm being shameless enough on here, but that's exactly what the mix consultancy helps you to do. It it helps deliver the best quality of mix to, to mastering. But um, yeah, you you want to be able to deliver the best possible thing to the next guy in the chain because what you want him to do or her, your your mastering engineer, you want to do their best work, which is a creative thing and taking what you have to the next level. If they're time and energy is consumed with fixing the thing that you didn't do then you're not getting the best out of them and that that goes for the same as if you're recording something you're delivering it to a mixing engineer ideally that mixing engineer is just mixing it and making it powerful and dynamic and exciting and warm and enveloping and all these things if he's fixing the fact that you didn't record it very well and everything's out of tune and out of time then he's not going to have the time or energy to get the best out of it so yeah, same with the mastering. I don't think anything should be left to the next guy to fix uh, because you also, on on another sort of front of this, you have more options, way more options while you're in a mix to fix things and get into the detail of fixing things than you have as a mastering engineer with a stereo file. So he has far fewer choices than you do. So uh, yeah, never leave it to mastering engineer. That's great. That's a really, really good point. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for being super, super clear on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Okay, cool. So we're going to um, wrap up the the podcast now. But just before we go, um, I'd love if you've got any kind of. Uh, there's lots and lots of our artists out there that are, um, yeah, re- you know, recording at home and producing at home, mixing at home. Do you have any kind of just generally general kind of broad tips for for kind of for those that are DIY mixing and and possibly DIY mastering as well? Um, okay, broad tips, let me think. Uh, one good thing is always to uh, have a reference of what you're aiming for sonically. I always ask my artists to provide me with a, a playlist of about a dozen tracks that they want me to aim for sonically and explain why as well. 
So uh, it could be like, I'll, I'll send you this track because I really like the drum sound on it or this track because I like the vocal sound and things like that. So, so that's really useful to always have on hand when you're mixing. So you can always flick between the track you're working on and the thing that you're referencing against. And that's a good kind of, it's a quality bar that keeps you honest and keeps you aiming for, for something better. Uh, so that's a good thing to have around. And the other thing is to always take breaks. It's very easy to get sort of lost down a rabbit hole and um, and your sort of perception can be quite easily lost while you're in the middle of mixing. Um, so so take a break, make a cup of tea or leave the building if you can, then go back in again and and then get a notebook and write out what you hear the first time you listen to it again. Because there's an analogy I use for this where, you know, if you go away, like if you go on holiday and then you come back to your flat and and you see all the things that, that you should be doing that everyone else sees. Like you walk into flat and you go, I still haven't painted the bathroom. It's disgusting. And why is that pile of clothes still in the corner? I wish should really clear those up. And you just haven't noticed that because you live there. And you have a period of about half an hour where you see your flat as everybody else does. And then you go back to normal. Well, I think the same thing happens with perspective when you're mixing is you step out of the room and then you come back in and for a couple of minutes you have a different perspective and you can hear it differently and you'll hear a load of things that are worth noting down to to go and look at further because once you're back into the flow of mixing you're kind of back into the detail again and you've lost that overview and perspective so that can be a really useful thing as well as you know keeping your ears fresh by not not drilling them uh for too long a periods at a time yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really great analogy, actually. I've not heard that one before. So that's some really, really great advice to, uh, to, to finish on as well. So Dom, thanks so much for joining us for the Music Made Me podcast. Uh, really appreciate your time and, and, and your advice here. Um, thanks again. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Again, uh, apologies if there are, are um, any um, issues with, uh, with the sound quality on this, on this particular episode. Uh, we're, uh, yeah, we're all trying to do our best from our remote location. So I hope... Uh, I hope it was good enough for you to uh, to check out. But uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out TuneCore.com to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes.